Are you the business leader your company deserves? Welcome to Learning Up Podcast, the community for business leaders who want to learn and implement the correct tools, methodologies, and secrets to scale their business and life. Through my journey, I have met and learned from great CEOs and business leaders, and I will invite them and new ones that I meet to get to know them more and continue to learn from the best. Hi, I'm Daniel Marco, CEO of Growth Institute, an entrepreneur for over 25 years and CEO coach for the last 14. Join this community to learn how to scale your impact while reducing the drama so you could really enjoy the ride. Good morning, good afternoon, or good night, depending on what part of the world you're visiting us. Hi, I'm Daniel Marcos, uh, your host of the podcast, Learning Up, how learning organizations scale faster than any other organization. We're very, very clear on, if you really want to scale your company, you have to scale your team first. And we're going to talk a lot about that and agile uh, growth with uh, Bruce Eckfeld. Hey, Bruce, how are you? I'm well, Daniel. How are you? Good. Hey, now it's my turn. I've been your podcast a couple of times. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. But now it's my turn to learn from you. Uh, thanks for that. Oh, my pleasure. So just a quick intro. Uh, Bruce, a consultant, coach, author, speaker on organizational development and performance management expert. He helps a lot of companies uh, be able to scale uh, using a lot of lean uh, and performance management uh, tools. He's an architect uh, by trade. And he has a lot of 3D modeling and all these kind of things that compared to a, another typical business coach that learns business, he has this different angle on it. And he's an expert on uh, what he calls extreme programming. Um, uh, and it's a little bit about agile and, and lean uh, software methodology uh, on how to really be more efficient the way you operate. Um, so uh, Bruce has helped a, a lot of Inc. 500 CEOs on really how to drive growth and be way more efficient uh, and reduce the drama in the operation. So super, super excited, Bruce. How are you? I'm well. I'm excited for this conversation. I, I I think learning is probably one of the best skills, really, as a professional, but certainly as an organization, you can focus on. Right? I think it's it's a really competitive advantage when you look at it. So let, let me get a little bit into agile, and then I'll go yeah. into learning. Uh, as you know, we, we're all about learning. You and I are are voracious uh, learners, and by the way, part learning of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell people, hey, thank you very much. You gave me a great learning uh, opportunity uh, to interview, but I'm going to learn a lot from you. So, yes. so we know that learning, but it's very, very hard and it's complicated sometimes to drive that learning in our organization. So we'll talk about that on the on the second part of the podcast. So yeah. first, let's start with what is agile execution? What's the yeah. difference of a typical execution with agile execution? Yeah, well, I mean, so um, my experience with Agile is, is somewhat unique in that, as you mentioned, I started life as an architect, um, and I got recruited to, to uh, interactive media and software because of my 3D modeling capabilities, and I get very involved in really product design and product development. So uh, what I really found was the big limiter of putting good product out to market was the time it was taking on the engineering side, right? So we were coming up with these great ideas, we would develop all these specifications, it would go to an engineering team. Six months later, we'd get a version of the software that either didn't work or didn't work the way we wanted or didn't work the way we needed at that point, right? So I, I realized that if I was going to be really effective as a product designer, I needed to really understand the software development process. And I was fortunate I was working with a company that um, had some really interesting folks that were uh, involved in extreme programming, which was late 90s, early 2000, was a, a very early lean approach to um, software development. Um, but it really focused on this 
being very quick with iterations, putting usable software in customers' hands, really driving things by customer feedback and customer satisfaction. And so that really taught me a lot about the importance of that cycle, that learning cycle, getting some information, developing a thesis, creating a solution, putting it back into users' hands, having them actually use that and give us feedback to figure out how we were going to evolve the system. So we, we the company I had, the tech company, um, was really focused on bringing in lean, agile methodology to these organizations. And so I learned a lot about the learning process and the culture process around that. And so when I sold that company and started working with um, folks on strategy and building out leadership teams, I really carried a lot of those principles and practices. And, and one of the concepts I have is um, one of the competitive advantages, advantages you can develop as a company is to outlearn the competition, right? Like how quickly can you learn what's going on in the market? Where are the opportunities and how quickly can you capitalize that? So I'm always kind of tying kind of strategy and strategic thinking to execution and how do we increase that cycle time so we can actually go from insight to actual business implementation as quickly as possible. Interesting. Okay. Hey, can they just for the audience, yeah. can you give me a couple of minutes of your company, what you did before you become uh, a coach and helping other companies scale? Yeah. So, um, you know, it was one of those sort of accidental entrepreneur stories, right? We had... I was working for another company. Uh, we had uh, an opportunity to develop some new products. Um, so I ended up leaving. We formed a new entity to uh, be able to work with that one company. That went very well. That turned into another project, turned into another company. And pretty soon we had, um, it was basically a lean agile consulting operation where we came into organizations that had large engineering teams and we would bring in uh, continuous improvement, test driven development, um, these kind of practices that increase the cycle times. Uh, so it was a combination of engineering practices, software development methodologies, and then training and kind of cultural shift processes that we went through. Okay. So so you were more folks on the programming side, and now you're a coach of all the business yeah. and you get a lot into the performance of the full business. Yeah. So, so tell me an example of a client that experienced a big change in the business when they implement agile methodology on the operation. Yeah. Um, well, I would say that one of the ones that always uh, really start shifting things is uh, the daily stand-up. And I know that's a pretty common practice now in scaling up, but it was, uh, it, from a lean, agile point of view, it was a pretty radical way of running things. Um, but that uh, regular rhythm of every morning, having that quick ch check-in with folks, what's working, what's not, what am I doing? Um, its ability to catch things quickly and make adjustments quickly. And most importantly, I find that most organizations actually reduce the number of meetings they have when they start doing daily standups, right? Because people know where to bring that information. They don't have to put all these other meetings on the calendar. Um, so that's a big one I find across all my clients. I've worked with one uh, architecture engineering firm who uh, started to apply Scrum uh, and putting together uh, small, self-managed, empowered, multidisciplinary teams for projects um, where you had an engineer, an architect, a designer, project manager. Yeah, in a small team. And they would work on a handful of projects, um, but their ability to kind of work out the minutia of complexity of a project quickly, rather than some project manager trying to create this Gantt chart of, okay, we're going to do this thing. We're going to create a specification and then it's going to go to the next person. Like that ability to be um, really uh, kind of lean and agile around how to execute on uh, projects, it radically transformed their business. I mean, not only from uh, an organization and a capacity point of view, but on profitability point of view, probably I think we were like up 22% uh, on average wow. in terms of yeah, profitability on projects. And a lot of it was, I mean, it, without getting into the minutia, if, if you look at waste in those processes, a lot of it has to do with 
assuming things are going to take certain amount of time and losing your buffer, right? If I give you two days to do a drawing, I'm going to take two days to do a drawing, right? Whereas if we just get the drawing done as fast as we can and figure out how to get on to the next step, I may be able to do it in a day, right? And I start saving all this time. And now I can use my buffer strategically at the end of a project rather than sprinkling in and over top of it. And, and a lot of that just goes into your pocket, right? That's that's profit that you can take advantage of rather than spending on the project. So I was doing a planning session in Phoenix um, uh, Monday and Tuesday. And when I got in Monday, uh, I had a meeting with the CEO first. And he was really mad about all these things that they've been going forever and they were not allowing the team to move forward. So one of the examples was a PowerPoint. So the sales teams wanted to improve the PowerPoint to do better sales calls. But they were, they've been working like two or three weeks on the PowerPoint and doing very small increments of change. And the guy said, no, today you're going to get no phone calls with new clients. You're going to build a PowerPoint and have the best amazing PowerPoint you can. Tomorrow, I don't want you to work on the PowerPoint. I want you to have all calls with clients. But today, just batch and get the best PowerPoint. Yeah. And we go down on Tuesday and really drive how to build a much, much better PowerPoint. What's the message you want to convey? What were the right slides? All of that. By Wednesday, when I, I left Tuesday, Wednesday, they sent me a PowerPoint at night and said, we're done. Yeah. Now we're going to start pitching clients with a new PowerPoint. And it was game changer. Yeah. And it was yeah. just the mindset of saying, I don't care. Today, the most important thing is get this done. And yeah. then just move forward. In time boxing. Right? That's, I mean, that's a great strategy of saying, look, Let's just spend eight hours and do as best we can in the but that's all we're going to do for eight hours. I mean, that intensity will drive change very, very quickly. Interesting. All right. So in today's world, everyone's trying to be uh, simplify the strategy and make the operation easier, and everyone's com complaining about complexity. Let's talk about linear company. Like, yeah. how do you start building a linear company that the typical competitor? Yeah. You know, I'd say one of the uh, best ways or the uh, kind of best tools to use in most of these companies when we're trying to figure out how to both sort of drive efficiency, but also turnover time or kind of cycle time um, is something called value stream mapping. So the, the basic concept is you want to look at the different stages or the different steps that a project or a system or a product goes through. And you really sort of want to looking at what is the sort of value at time and what is the wait time in the process. And so like I worked with a, um, uh, it was actually the same engineering company, and we we're looking at what it took to get a certain amount of drawings out. I think it was like 27 days uh, is what they, from start to end. And we we looked at, okay, what's the actual work that goes in the drawing? How long does it wait? How, how many times does it ship back and forth between the departments? Once you start mapping that out and you start looking for opportunities to remove waste, right? So unnecessary changes, unnecessary handoffs, unnecessary waiting, like you start finding ways of shrinking this down. I think we got it down to seven days. And the, the ability to not only remove waste from the system, but the competitive advantage for that company being able to say like, you know, most, most groups are going to take a couple of weeks to get this done. We can actually get it to you in seven days was a game changer, right? So this starts to become really, how do I focus on customer need and customer value? What, what customers define as value, not what I define as value. We start focusing on that. And you can start really changing a lot of what you're doing. So I've never heard of the term value stream mapping. And I just went in and did some research and I was seeing some, some uh, images about it. Oh it's yeah, you can get really what, complicated. <laughs> it gets really complicated, by the way. Yes, but it, it's all about, so I studied industrial engineering as yeah. a, a, in college and that's everything we did, but just in the factory. Yeah. We don't take it to any other project 
mapping or anything. And mm -hmm. this is doing that with other areas of the business. Yeah. Um, and I started industrial engineering, how the Japanese did just in time and cameras and all oh, these yeah. kind of things. And now you're bringing that to every, every, every other discipline in the business. That's brilliant. Exactly. Um, on delivery. And yes, yes, uptime and wait time and all that within how many people and all that. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so that's on the process side. What about on the strategy and what about on the running with your teams? Uh, I've been hearing recently that, hey, it's it's getting too complex. I have a lot of team members uh, and they're, the amount of people we're hiring, they're not very excited. We have all the the things culturally, the great resignation, all that. Yeah. Like, what kind of tools you've seen for leading teams in a more linear way, more efficient way that you're using for your clients? Well, I think so. One is the um, smaller self-managed empowered teams is definitely a game changer for a lot of businesses. You start figuring out how to enable teams. You know, so I talk a lot of, about commander's intent, right? Like you get clear on what your objective is, what the boundaries are, what the rules are, and then let the team figure out the how. It, it does two things. Not as it to drive just efficiency in the organization, responsiveness, but you now have engaged teams, right? Because they have a lot more autonomy, they have control, they can make decisions, right? They, they feel a lot more connection and impact to the outcome. So that's, I found that a big game changer for a lot of organizations. The other one that I'm, I always bring into my clients pretty quickly is this idea of a culture of continuous improvement, right? So bringing in retrospectives or, you know, the kind of the military analogy is the after action reviews, right? Like how do I, look at the work we've done see what worked, what didn't, find root causes, figure out what are we wanting to change? We do keep, start, stops, right? It, it, it creates this idea that we can always be better, but it, it doesn't need to be big, huge, dramatic reorganization changes, right? We can find small incremental ways to make improvements on a daily, weekly basis. Like that starts empowering teams, right? When you give teams the ability to say, hey, look, what's working, what's not, what do you want to change? And you give them resources, tools, and autonomy at those changes, they're in it, right? They own the process now. And that's a big shift for a lot of companies. And, and as you said, there's sometimes small things, but doing them incrementally. And every month implementing one or two small things, it ends up adding a lot. But people 1%, don't have the It's the 1%. You, you, you make a 1% improvement every week for a year, right? That's a 200% improvement for the year. <laughs> but but they, they say, well, it's too small. It's not going to matter. Yeah, but you if, if you add that, the next week you add another one, next week you add another one, it's game changer at the end of the year. Yeah, exactly. All right, um, let, let's take a little bit of this to uh, working remotely. Yeah. Um, you and I coach a lot of companies that now they have a lot of remote employees and they have this discussion, hey, should we bring them back, not bring them back? You're seeing what uh, happened with Amazon. I thought it was brilliant that they're doing their second corporate headquarters in Virginia. And they stopped it after billions. They invested over a billion. And I remember it was a big drama in the world, all, all the states trying to compete. And now they even cancel the project uh, because no one wants to go back home and they're laying off a lot of employees, but no one wants to go back to the office. So how do you deal and build a high-performance team working remotely? Have you seen what's working well? Yeah, I mean, so I've been working with remote teams actually for all my coaching career, like for the last decade, I have several clients that have distributed remote teams. So, uh, you know, I have always found, um, you know, it's a trade-off, right? Like there's there's some benefits to being in person. There's some benefits uh, to being remote. You know, some of it's about access to talent, uh, like, but you, you can do either. I wouldn't say that I have um, 
a philosophical bent one way or the other. It's really a question of what is the team trying to do and what principles and practices do you need to bring in? And then how do you do that either in a remote or in a um, uh, remote or an in-person way? Um, I do find that I try with my teams, if they're a remote or distributed leadership team, at least, that once or twice a year, we're getting together in person to do some work together just to create kind of the social interpersonal connection, you know, the, the connective tissue between folks. But I think, you know, in terms of the work, I mean, there's some real advantages to being remote, right? Like, especially if you don't, you know, people are sleeping more, they go to the gym because they don't have to travel, right? Like all these kind of, um, you know, things that allows you to do. So it's really a question of trade-offs. I mean, I, I've, I certainly have developed lots of ways of running virtual meetings that uh, create engagement, that create, um, you know, if you look at the kind of standard things that create good teams or good meetings anyway, um, you know, equal airtime, psychological safety, everyone has a voice, right? Like these, you can do these things. In fact, um, I mean, I love the fact that I can mute people on Zoom <laughs> because someone's talking too long. I can just cut them off. Like I don't have to deal with the meeting, right? So it's it's trade-offs. Um, I think the really thing is to be intentional about it and to understand, well, why are you why are you going to be virtual or why are you going to be in person and making sure that's really the best option and then working around that based on kind of the, the opportunities it provides or the downsides that it has. Have you have you seen some team members that they're not as productive and then you say you have to come back to the office or whatever? And and how do you deal with that? What have you coach other CEOs to deal with that? So I guess in general, my philosophy is if I've set up a good role scorecard, I've set expectations correctly, I've provided the right resources, I've empowered the person to do the work they need to do, you know, assuming that I've, I've made it clear the interconnection and the communication they need to have, I don't care, right? As long as they're getting it done, I don't care. Now, the moment they're not getting it done, then I care. Um, and But then I need to be I really need to be thoughtful about what intervention I'm going to make. I find that somehow, you know, okay, I just want you in the office so I can see you is a little draconian sometimes. I mean, maybe that's helpful because what they're missing is resources or they're not available. Like if they're not online and I can't get to them. Okay. But I think a lot of people just kind of default to, I want you in the office because it's a control thing. And I think you need to be a little bit more intelligent around how you approach this stuff and decide, okay, is this, is this really going to solve the problem or not? And you really figure out what the problem is first. So if you could share just one lesson with a business leader, what will that be? Well, what, what's the one thing that you try to teach everyone? Yeah. I, you know, I, um, I work with a, a lot of fairly aggressive high growth companies uh, that are in pretty dynamic markets, meaning you have a lot of regulatory changes or just competitive changes. Um, and the thing that I always try to emphasize is that the single most important uh strategic differentiating skill, competitive skill you can develop is to be able to outlearn your other organizations, right? Your competitors, right? If you can, if you can figure out how to see an opportunity and take that insight into an actual business action as quickly as possible, it doesn't matter how great your strategy is, because your strategy is going to be obsolete in weeks, months, depending on how quickly the industry changes. It's how quickly you can re-strategize. So I always say strategy is a process, not an outcome. And really developing that muscle. I talk a lot about developing a strategic muscle so that you can go through that process quickly and efficiently and effectively. Nice. So so let me transition on learning. Um, yeah. This podcast is called Learning Up. And, and we really believe learning is what really scales companies. So very, very aligned with that. But we talk with a lot of leaders. And, and by the way, when I start having a conversation with a potential client or a potential uh, CEO that I'm coaching, I always ask, hey, what are you reading now? 
Mm-hmm. And you know the, the, the good ones, they have a list of things they're reading and they're learning and they're excited about learning. Um, but then they all complain that it's very, very different to get their team to learn. That, mm-hmm. hey, I have all these lists and I recommend all these books and I go into my EO and my YPO forums and, and they're all the time learning. But then we have a different perspective with the rest of the team. Mm-hmm. So what are the tools that you've seen to build a learning organization, everyone else to learn that have worked? And how do you drive learning inside a full organization? Well, I think the first thing is uh, to appreciate and understand that everyone learns differently, right? Like if you happen to, you know, learn through reading, that's great, but not everyone in your organization is going to do that. So one thing I try to encourage folks is to have multiple ways that you can uh, but people can absorb content or learn content, right? So some people like videos, some people like audiobooks, some people like reading, some people like to go to courses, some people like to do it in groups, right? Some people are kinesthetic learners, right? So is is a understand that you need to provide different modes for folks, and then two, I'm a big fan of the quarterly plan, right? And I I want everyone in my organization to have a personal quarterly plan, right? And that should include areas that they're going to learn. And I always start with the things that they want to learn. right? And I find then the then overlap between the things that would benefit the company and let's focus right. on those. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter all the things I want them to learn. Uh, if they don't want to learn some of those things that we're not going to be successful. I mean, you have a conversation around that, but I want to focus on things that they want to learn that are going to value the company. And then I want to put objectives around it. Right. And then I let, let them drive it. Right. The p- individuals should be in charge of their own learning. I need to provide the structure and the resources and the feedback to help them do that. But the typical concern is I don't have time, right? I'm too busy. I don't have time. Uh, and and I, I was having a conversation with a, with a CEO the other day. He said, I'll pay you three times more for the learning if you get my team to learn, to use it. He, yeah. said, he said, the learning for them, it's, it, they don't have time. They're too busy. They're, how do you prioritize learning and how do you make it top of their list, top of their priority for them to want to do it? So we can we can schedule another podcast on defensible calendar <laughs> where I can go through how to manage your time. But yeah. like I mean, learning, it's it's got to be a priority, right? Like there. Your priority yeah. is the single resource you have, anyone in the world, but certainly executives or really anyone in a company is time, right? And if you have not, if you haven't, if you have not sat down to figure out what your priorities are, how you're going to invest your time, and then how you're going to schedule and manage it in your calendar, it won't happen. Right. If I don't see it in your calendar, it's not going to happen. Right. So it's got to be a process for which people are actually dedicating, you know, 10 minutes a day, an hour a week, a day, a day, a month, a day, a quarter, like whatever proportion is the right investment. But it's got to be in the calendar. If it's not in the calendar, it's not going to happen. So you first thing you do is they get they decide what they want to learn and then help them prioritize putting in their calendar. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Uh, last question, just to close this. Yeah. What are two or three things that you've seen leaders need to learn today that, that it's been changing and their learning has to be changing and adapting? So what are two or three things that you recommend leaders to learn? Well, I think that, I mean, at a high level, I would say to be humble. <laughs> you know, there's so much change going on in the world right now that you have to be really willing to question all of your assumptions and all of the things that you've thought about before and figure out, okay, does this still apply, right? There's, yeah. there's so many shifts. Um, I mean, a, you know, a great example, chat GPT, right? Everyone's talking about it. And I mean, the, the technology itself is whatever, but the, just the whole, this is a paradigm shift, right? This is going to be a paradigm shift in terms of how information is stored and accessed and, and everyone is kind of like, oh, we should fight it. The great, the I think the great leaders are looking at this. Where can I leverage this, and how can I use it to actually increase my services rather than commoditize my services? So I think this whole idea of you know being humble, like questioning things, being willing to try things and experiment, 
th- those are the big things I'm focused on with my executives that, because if they can't do that, there's a great stat that I think uh, 60% of people are less self-aware than they think they are. <laughs> oh, you know, and it's because it's true. Like we we have so many natural biases to think that we're right, to think that we understand, to think that we're aware of things. And and you've got to you've got to have forces in play. You've got to have systems around you that help you um, counter that. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Um, last question: What are two the top three books or methodologies you recommend everyone reads or or it's an expert on? There's so many. Um, the the ones that I love going to um, uh, the goal uh, Eli Goldratt. Um, classic. I think it really changed my perspective on really how to drive continuous improvement and value and flow. Um, the other one I would say is flow. Um, Mikhail check sent me high um, is really looking at what goes into high performance individuals and teams. Uh, I've been fascinated by that for the last couple of years. I've been doing What's a the lot name of the book. Uh, well, so he's several. There's one called Flow, um, but also Stephen Kotler. You know, Stealing Fire. There's um, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna not list them all out, but anything to do with flow, group flow, individual flow, flow state. Um, I think that is really a, a sort of a next generation of performance. Like if you look at executive and, and really any performance, but executive performance specifically, um, I think those are really great. Uh, to sell is human. I, I think it's a great one for most people. I think a lot of people get caught up in sales. I think, especially if you're in a high growth company, everyone's got to sell and just embracing a sales culture is really powerful. So a couple that I like. <laughs> 